I actually came across you through that video you did with Jared Zystro. Right. Uh-huh. For the Organic Seed Alliance. Yep. And that was done by who? I wonder. That was done by somebody else, though. Who was that? It didn't was mention. Was by Washington State University, or who was that done by? Or it was not, by the Quinoa. The Organic Seed Alliance, not, it wasn't his organization? It wasn't his organization. Oh, I didn't know that. Either. Yeah. No, he, um, I'm sorry, I'm just trying to turn my phone off. So. No worries. Yeah, okay. I've been, I fall prey to that all the time where your phone starts dinging. You're like, oh, forgot about that. All right. <clears throat> yeah, so I have no idea what we're even going to talk about. I guess <laughs> we'll figure it out. That's about. all part of the fun. Yeah, well, I think that would be kind of part of the fun for you guys, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, but that's how I found you was through him. He was actually on, what, the other, the other day we were talking to him about what he's doing with the you did Jared person. the other yeah, day? Yeah, Jared was on, yeah. Wow, just him alone. He was in yep. here. That's amazing. That was probably, what, Tuesday? Wow. Tuesday? Did he talk about the quinoa project a little bit? We talked, I, I don't know if we dug into the quinoa. He yeah. kind of freaked me out with all the the GMO stuff and what's going on with the lack of diversity in, in our crops. Right. Which kind of. So he, you were talking just basically, yeah. that More broad overview right, stuff. Right, yeah. Was that your first introduction when he came out? help you with the quinoa breeding we've been doing that for many years him and i are, Can you do are we up? we're not aligned we're not doing it yet are we? are we up yeah we're up we're rolling this is it this is it oh, this is, it's natural <laughs> it's just a slow roll yeah jared's amazing jared's amazing um no i've been working with jared for many years um doing our quinoa project and how did is, that start um, originally it was you know it was a different uh, objective than it is now um how did it start? I don't know. I met him sometime along, well, many years ago now, probably about 10 years ago. And, and we got talking about quinoa. And at first we did, our projects were just about evaluation. Uh, I'm sorry. Did, can you pull that? Just, yeah. you want to be like right in front of that yeah. sucker. All right. At first, our, our, the intention was just evaluation of all different uh, types of quinoa, you know, because when we first started growing, there weren't that many choices of varieties or, or sources of seed. And so we uh, acquired whatever we could from wherever we could from a couple local breeders in the in the states here, which there were only a couple. There were people that were breeding quinoa, and we also sourced a bunch from South America, and um, and even some just out of stores here and there. We just did all kinds of experiments, um, kind of trials to see what worked and what didn't, and it was it was really interesting. But then over the years, it turned into him and I. Um, Selecting from a, a variety that 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 we develop a, a variety that I kind of developed by accident, um, which is a rainbow variety that has all kinds of different colors in it, and him and I started selecting um, specific ones out of out of the out of the field that had traits that we really liked, and then we were trying to uh, isolate those traits and and make those into uh, clean varieties, you know, where they were very uniform, and that's what we've been working on for many years now, Jared and I. What were you guys selecting for specifically? Size, well, color? Um, well, yeah, I mean, there's different colored seed, of course, and we were looking for a white seed. And we call it white, even though it's more of a cream colored, even though there's, you know, when people say uh, regular quinoa, you know, it's, it's kind of a, everywhere from bright white to kind of a cream, kind of a tan color. That's kind of the regular quinoa color. We also grow, you know, blacks and reds and those kind of colors too. But we were, we were specifically um, interested in, in developing a new white variety. And we wanted one, of course, that was well-suited to our area here. 
um, that uh, matured in, on time. Because w around here, one of the issues with quinoa is for it to mature before the fall rains start. And so you, you want it to, you know, fairly early maturity. Um, and the other thing was we were looking for a really big seed. You know, quinoa is a really tiny seed, as you know. And we kind of, somehow I thought a bigger seed would be neat. And so that was one of our objectives. And and we've been uh, pretty successful. It's We've got a, a bunch of, uh, I don't know if we'd, I'd call them varieties yet, but they're almost varieties. There's still some... Uh, you know, non-uniformity and, and a lot of off types in them, but um, getting pretty close to having a few types of uh, new white variety of quinoa that are really neat. Big seed, very productive, of course, is the other thing, and they need to um, they need to not fall over, not be too tall, uh, they need to have a nice structure um, in the way that we grow, because we've developed kind of our own way of growing it, and so when we're selecting for a type of quinoa, we're selecting for under the conditions that we grow it in. You know, I mean, in South America, you know, traditionally quinoa was grown with very wide spacing. You know, like plants three feet apart in all directions. Like one plant and then another three or four feet apart, another plant. You know, and so very huge plants you get. Each plant would be giant. And would have a whole bunch of stems because it's like a lot of plants, you know, like pots that way. Um, a lot of flowers are that way that if it has a lot of room, it branches a lot. Um, but if it's grown very crowded, it just sends up one stem. And we grow our quinoa very crowded, um, not like they traditionally grew it in South America. Is there an advantage to having it be more crowded? Well, it or was less? kind of a. a, a an evolution of us figuring that out. When I first started growing it a long time ago, I tried to grow it. I started growing it far apart because that's the way that, you know, you see the photos of it. And this was like 15 years ago or so. Um, that's kind of just the way quinoa looks. There's these big giant plants with all these branches. And so I started growing it that way. But um, that, uh, it, it just wasn't working. Um, and, all, and the reason it wasn't, was um, one of the reasons, I mean, we're growing more than a little bit of it. And so when you have plants that are far apart, you have that empty space between them. And that's a place for weeds to be. So it means you have to do weed control. You have to go out there and, um, and you might have your rows, say, four feet apart or something. But um, in between the rows, you can cultivate with the tractor and get the weeds. But then the row itself, you've got one plant, another three feet later, another plant. And of course, you're probably going to have some weeds in that three-foot section. And um, even if you try to you know, get weed strikes in with your equipment ahead of time so that you don't have many weeds, you're, st you're still going to have some there. And so it means you have to go out there and deal with the weeds. So that was one of the reasons the far-apart spacing was not working. Another is when you cultivate with the tractor, if your plants are far apart and you're, you know, you, you've got on your tractor what we have is on the belly of the tractor, you know, kind of right in front of you. We have uh, a hydraulic toolbar that drops down, and it has knives on it that, you know, kill the weeds in between the rows. So you're driving along, and you're killing all the weeds, you know, before when they're just tiny little things. You don't wait for them to get big, of course, um, in, the, in, the, in between the rows. And if the plants are far apart, it makes steering really hard because there's not one little line you can follow. So you can't get as close with your cultivation. So that's another reason. Um, and then a, one of the biggest reasons 
is when the plants are far apart like that, they take a lot longer to mature. Um, you know, for the plants to dry back and, and be ready to combine and harvest, they take a couple few weeks longer than if they're really crowded. If they're really crowded, they mature two, three weeks earlier. Now, why is that? Is that just competition Well, all, for all plants or? are that way. I mean, a lot of plants are that way. Like if you just grew a, an average flower, you know, like in a garden, like you know, if you bought cosmos or, or zinnias and you planted them really close together, they're going to flower a little quicker than if they're far apart because they just are kind of pushed just to that as opposed to branching out and being more vegetative. It's just a, um, a, a fact of the way most a lot of plants are. But even in our quinoa fields, you can see that now. You know, like the, around the perimeter of a field, the plants will all be green, completely green on the very edge where everything in from that is brown and dead because those ones on the edge have more room and so they're taking longer to mature. Um, but uh, so quicker maturity you get too. But, uh, the, and then another reason that we started growing closer together was when you have these giant plants with all these branches, some of the flower heads are going to be right at ground level because they're leaning over at ground level. And some are going to be seven, eight feet high in the air. And so you're having to go along with the combine, you know, what you, what you harvest the, the crop with, and you're having to set the, the cutting edge of it very low to make sure you get all your seed. So you're bringing in the, all the massive amount of stemmage, all, that, all the stems that lean all over and it, it makes it really awkward to combine because some of the stuff's one feet tall and some of it's eight feet tall. So, um, and it makes it so it's, you really don't get it all. It's not going to work very good that way. But if you grow it very, very densely, I mean, we started out growing it, um, it was kind of a gradual thing. You know, we, we started with our rows, they got closer and closer together and our, uh, and our spacing in the row got closer and closer together to where now we grow, we, we literally put like six seeds an inch um, as opposed to, we have like 70 plants a foot as opposed to one plant every three feet, you know? And um, so now they just send up one little tiny stem uh, because there's seven, there's five seeds, five plants an inch. So they're, each one's a spindly little plant with a little seed head on it. But all those seed heads are at the exact same height across the field. So when you combine it, you could just set your combine six inches below that head, and you can just zoom across, and it makes it so it's very fast. It's all uniform. And it makes it, exactly, very uniform. And it makes it uh, mature, all at the same exact rate. Too. Does that affect the quantity that it produces at all? You know, it's been very plastic, they say, as far as that. It's in that there's been studies now, over the last 10, 15 years, of course, there's been all kinds of research going on all over the world with quinoa. You know, because, I mean, so many years ago, they called it the, the United Nations, you know, named it the year of quinoa. And, um, it had a big boom. Like, it had a like really Kale big had, boom. Where it had, where people just thought, boom. this it, is the food that's going to end all other foods. Yeah, it got, it was just super trendy and popular for a little while there. Um, and it's definitely trailed off. Uh, the demand for it in the stores and places seems to have trailed off a little. But I still think it has the potential to get bigger again. It is such a, a great food. You know, it's really good, um, and it's so nutritious. Um, and it, uh, I think, I think the growth, I think it'll eventually become pretty popular. Eventually, I think. Um, but no, it's been found. All the research all over the world. That was one of the, a lot of the studies being done was the, the the ideal density in the field for the biggest yield, and they found that it was really. Um, 
all about the same if, if, if the weeds were kept under control. Um, that you could have plants far apart or plants really dense, and it all equaled out. Because if you had more plants, there were more little stems, more, um, you know, per square foot, the amount of seed was about the same as really huge plants with just a few big flowers. They found it was very much the same. Um, of course, there's some varieties now that they've been breeding quinoa for a while that are more um, specifically grown for high density that probably wouldn't do good if they were planted far apart because they're not, um, they don't have it in their genetics to make as many branches. And so at this point, you, um, you have to know how a plant was breeded to know the proper spacing for it because there are, is now. There's still not that much quinoa breeding going on. In the States? Or anywhere nationally, I mean, there's, it's, the world. I mean, all in South America, of course, of course, they've where, that's the hub where it came from Ecuador, you know, uh, Peru, and that those areas down there. Um, there was a lot of uh, there's always been a lot of breeding, but but not real. I don't think the serious breeding started until a few decades ago. It was more just you know, all the local farmers in each location would have their own um, varieties that they grew and that they selected for and, and made better over time. And so when you're breeding for these certain characteristics, how long is that taking to get where you, you want to go? <clears throat> well, yeah, um, it was very interesting with Jared um, working with him because what we did to start with is we selected from, you know, a big population of plants in a big field. We'd walk through the field and we'd find plants that, you know, there's always a lot of, uh, there's always diversity, you know, out there. And so we would... Uh, and that's considered a good thing, as I'm sure Jared told you. And that's what keeps... Yeah, we talked about that yeah, at length. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, so we, we, we would find plants that, had, that just seemed exemplary, ones that just seemed uh, like they had extra big seed, because that's one thing that was interesting to us, like they were maturing maybe a little earlier, like they were really loaded with seed, great yield. Um, they look strong, you know. Um, and we, we would select those plants, and then we'd put them in a bag, and we'd grow them out the next year. We'd grow the seed from that particular plant out the next year. And, of course, what we found, we would try to do that in an isolated way because quinoa is wind-pollinated, and the traditional notion was that it had a heavy pollen. So unlike corn, which is also wind-pollinated, but it can blow for you know, a long, long ways, quinoa supposedly didn't really blow very far. So if you had your plants 10 feet apart, that was considered far enough apart to where it wouldn't cross with, with the next one. Um, but what we found was that, that it was a lot bigger distance um, and things were crossing. Um, it, they had to be more like 100 feet across, we felt, to really keep it to, so it wouldn't cross with each other. Which is counterproductive for how you guys were planting, where you're planting them closer together. Well, but no, it, it, was, it was fine for, uh, um, for production. But when we, were, when we started doing our, our breeding, where we would want to grow just a particular plant's seeds, it makes it awkward because um, it means you have to have, what are you going to do with all the space? You have to have 100 feet between plants. So, I mean, how are you going to do that in a field? I mean, this is not part of our production field. It's part of our breeding area, which is different. Oh, so you have a different area designed Yeah, because for we can't do our, our breeding stuff in a field because it'll be crossing with everything else. And then we wrecks all of our, all of the uh, you know, work we've done in selecting those things and trying to keep them separate. And, 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 um, and so uh, 
what we did was um, we would plant them out in squash field. And, you know, every so many rows of squash, we'd put a few quinoa plants to keep them far enough apart from each other. But it was very frustrating because we would gather a particular plant seeds that we loved, and we would grow them by themselves the next year, and they would come up a million different types of seeds. They all diff- they'd look all different ways. And it would be like, this is hopeless. And then we'd do it again. We would select out of that again and the ones we liked. And then we'd grow them out separate from everything else the next year. And then once again, we'd see just a mix of all kinds of stuff. And so we, <clears throat> so it was uh, <clears throat> frustrating. But we did that enough years to where we ended up with um, some lines that were very uniform. You know, that when we'd grab the seed from a plant and grow it the next year, and they'd all look ad- identical. And um, so that was um, that was good. And not only identical, but we were doing it with enough plants. I think some years we had like 70 different, 80 different ones we were doing every year. I mean, there'd be a few we'd toss out. And then, um, but uh, <clears throat> we, we've, we've got some that, that look good now. And so from starting out to get to that uniformity, what are we talking? Five years? Yeah, I think it was. But, you know, I mean, we've heard stories of uh, people doing it a lot quicker. I mean, like Frank Morton up in uh, Philamath, Oregon, near Eugene. Um, you know, he's been breeding, breeding quinoa for decades. And uh, he's the one who came up with some, some really great varieties. And uh, he, he can get, go get a variety really soon, he said. Yeah, he can... Uh, but we had we had much more trouble. But maybe it was our original stock we were picking from. Maybe that might have. Is been that it. what would influence that? I mean, how would you control to make? Yeah, it? maybe ours ours was. Who knows? We're not really sure. Maybe our the one the, the, our originals the the gene pool we were pulling from had lighter pollen, and so it was cross pollinating easier. Or uh, maybe we were just stupider. I was stupider. You know, <laughs> just pulled the wrong yeah. straw. <laughs> Something happened. So. How, how did you get started in quinoa? You've got Wildwood, Wild Rose Farm out there in Blue Lake. Was that what you started that with, was quinoa? Um, no, no. I started just doing a small vegetable thing, you know, many long time ago. Just I mean, for I yourself? I started working for produce? Dennis Potter in the, in the 1980s. You know, he did a vegetable farm out there and started working for him. And, and then I just started on a very small scale, just growing a little vegetables and selling them. That's how I started. But I had grown up eating quinoa. And... Uh, um, I'm sorry. Can you pull that? Just, yeah, just... yeah. And uh, I remember reading a book that was written in the '80s or something by a guy up in Oregon, Steve Solomon, who wrote a book about growing vegetables west of the Cascades. And um, it was a good resource book for you know growing vegetables, and it still is. And I remember in the back of that book, he um, theorized that he thought this was a great area to grow quinoa. And um, so I tried it a long time ago. And I, I mean, I tried just little bits here and there and eventually just started trying to grow more and more. And uh, originally got our seed, the very first seed that we got that actually kind of worked, we got from a farm in Colorado, White Rock Farm in Colorado. And they're, they're kind of one of the original quinoa growers in the United States. And they're doing in the, what's it called? I forget the name of the valley in Colorado. It's a very high elevation there. But of course, it's not the high elevation that quinoa likes. It's cooler temperatures it likes um, in order to set seed. When the temperatures are too warm, it it doesn't like to set seed. Um, yeah, and then we just started growing, you know, uh, more and more. And 
somehow we got the, att the attention of Lumberg Family Farms in the Central Valley, you know, found out about us growing quinoa, and, and they came to visit us. And, uh, and they said that they'd been messing around with it, trying to grow it down there in the Central Valley. You know, they're, they're the big rice farm. You know, That's the one out of Chico? Yeah, Lumberg rice cakes and all the rice you buy in the store. I mean, their rice is everywhere. They're huge, huge farm. And was that right around the time that quinoa was starting to gain some traction? Yeah, it was, States? exactly, right about then. And, um, and they said um, that they would like me to grow quinoa for them. And so I did. I, I started growing quinoa for them. And uh, they, you know, I didn't have the money to, to go rent the land and buy all the fertilizer and the, run all the tractors. And so they helped out with that and um, did that for a few years for them. And then they wanted more and more. And so I, I went to uh, James Baird and uh, his dad, Peter, uh, Peter Bear. Um, they're, they're part of the Mennonite community down in uh, you know, the Highway 36 area. And those guys started growing quinoa too, and um, and then I I stopped growing for Lumberg a couple of years. I got up to growing a lot of quinoa for them, and they were they were paying the bills for it mainly because I didn't have the resources to go rent all that land and stuff. Of course, same thing. Um, but then I stopped doing it because uh, the, you know the men the Mennonite community was doing such a great job and um, had much more resources than I had, and of course to do. A, to do it and uh just i didn't see it i i just didn't feel like it was worth doing anymore um i mean i'm still growing you know and we sell our own quinoa of course between san francisco and southern oregon um but at that scale it just wasn't cost productive anymore no it it, it could have been it could have been um and would have been if i if i kept going but it would have meant a lot of investment I would have had to, you know, invest in a lot of equipment. And see, uh, they were just much better suited to be growing for the Lumbergs. Um, the Mennonites? Yeah. Why is that? Well, um, they do a ton of farming um, down there in the, you know, in the Ferndale and the Lolita area and um, up Highway 36. I didn't know we had a Mennonite community around here. Yeah, they're, they're really great. Um, anyhow, they, uh, they have... Uh, they do a lot of farming for the dairies. They grow a lot of hay. You know, these days when you see a corn silage field down in that area, it's usually associated with one of the dairies, but they've been contracted to, the Mennonites are contracted to grow and grow it, and they're growing it. Um, and they're just amazing farmers. Um, and so they have all a big resource, a big lot of land that they either lease or own. And, you know, obviously you shouldn't grow the same crop year after year in the same field. Um, and so for me to go rent a big place, a field, I mean, I, I could only be there a year or two growing where they can just, they've got land, they can rotate around and they have all the tractors and good tractor drivers. And, um, I was, you know, I was a hokey vegetable grower and trying, trying to start, you know, get bigger and bigger and grow big fields of stuff. And, um, I, I get people to work on the tractors and sometimes, you know, they, they would, they would be their first day on a tractor and they'd be doing it in a big field. And of course, so we made mistakes and stuff. And were they, they're, yeah. So they was, it's just better, they're better suited to, to do it than, than I was. But it was, a we got, we got to grow in a lot of quinoa for a few years. We grew, you know, well over 300 acres for a few years of quinoa. That's a lot of quinoa. Yeah. And, and those guys are growing a lot. 
right now. They're growing hundreds of acres a year for sure. Why do you think demand has gone down? Is it just the fad has changed? Kind of like what happened with kale? Um, I don't know if the demand for kale has gone down. I think that might be about the same. I just think people just don't talk about it much anymore. And the quinoa thing's kind of the same way. I think there's still a big demand. It's just not... Um, people aren't trying to cram it down your throat. Yeah, it's just not being talked about much. I don't know why it went down. Maybe it's just... I mean, it's not like it's a really delicious thing. You know, it's it's pretty of, good, though. It's I mean, whatever it's you put flavor, on it. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. not jam-packed with a ton yeah. of flavor or anything. I think, that, I think the demand will eventually go up. And a lot of other people think that, too. That eventually, um, the demand will go up a lot. Well, nutrition-wise, it has a lot going for it. Yeah, yep. I think kale, kale is always interesting because I was kind of young when that boom happened. And then you're right. I don't know if it's you're right in the sense that people just kind of stop talking about it but still eat it. But quinoa, remember that, it just kind of surfaced. Everybody was talking about quinoa. Quinoa was in every dish. You're getting a side of quinoa. It's joked put, about by movie star. Yeah. yeah. And then it kind of just one day was not in pop culture in that same way. But I love it. I Went through a period, I was buying these, might have been like 15-pound sacks from Amazon, shipped from somewhere, who knows where, and I was just going to town. I'd have my quinoa with some hot sauce, and oh, I loved it. It was great. Yeah. Do you want to get to a point where you're growing more quinoa? Are you? We, we, I mean, we still grow quite a bit of quinoa that we sell. You know, all the local stores around here have our quinoa in their bulk departments and in their grocery shelves. and. And, uh, and we are, we're actually planning on growing more and more as time goes on and enlarging the area that we sell it in and, uh, and also trying to do a better job of selling locally as well, um, with better packaging. Is that the hard part is branding in a local environment? Um, I don't know if it's hard. It's just never been something I've focused on. Um, You're out there working the farm. Yeah, but I'm I'm trying to put more energy into that now, into 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 marketing our quinoa. And so we're our intention is to continue to grow more and more, um, for sure. I mean, do you do year, any? We'll do, probably we'll probably have sixty acres this year of quinoa. So, do you do any direct to consumer stuff? Well, we do farmers market. Okay, but that's a tiny quantity of what we sell with everything else that we grow as well. What's the primary way that you sell it? All of our stuff. Um, uh, we sell the local stores. Yeah. The co-op, Eureka Natural Foods. I didn't know that. That's a great way to get out there. Yeah. I mean, we, we grow a lot of things other than quinoa, too. You know, um, we grow Brussels sprouts and potatoes. Now, the way that you run your farm, are you cycling where you grow your crops? Try to keep the soil healthy? Or how do you deal with that? Well, that's, yeah, we rotate. For sure, yeah, we rotate stuff. Now you mentioned that book as being a valuable resource. Is that that, kind was, that of, was a long time? That ago, was yeah, yeah. I Is that at that book? In was that kind of your decades. start? I mean, were you was your family growing vegetables? No, back I've in the got day? no my family. I mean, every you go back far enough, and everybody's family was a farmer, you know. But no, I uh, my my immediate family was not farmers. So what got you into it? Why did you start growing? Um, I started working on farms when I was. 
yeah, just in, in college, early early college, uh, for Dennis Potter out in Blue Lake, who is now no longer there. But he, he grew a lot of stuff for the local stores. He was one of the guys who founded the farmer's market around here a long time ago. And was it just a way to kind of make a little cash on the side while you were going to school, or this was something you No, I really liked the work. I thought it. it was good work, yeah. Being outside and um, felt like it had, had some meaning and all that. Um, I mean, I can question all those things for sure. <laughs> well, there is something to question be said but... about hard work. It is a very gratifying kind of work. Well, everything's hard, though. Everybody's job is hard, I feel like. Yeah, but is it? I mean, if you've got a desk job. It's hard di- in a different way, but it's... Yeah. yeah. But is it, though? Definitely. You think? Absolutely, yeah. For sure. I definitely... Um, yeah, that's... Yeah, I definitely respect everybody's work enormously. That's why it kind of can be a little annoying when, you know, there's these... I mean, I'm not trying to get political here at all, but like, but like government help for certain jobs or certain this, you know, why why not the person working at McDonald's? Why why aren't they getting some help, you know, or uh, just just everybody? Yeah. All it's, work is equal work. Yeah. You're a better man than me. I think some work. I've roofed houses. I've worked construction. I mean, that's a different kind of work. Kind of like with working a farm. I mean, backbreaking work me is it's kind of a different lane you got to have some mental fortitude to get through a day doing that yeah maybe yep so we were talking about marketing that's something i've struggled with a little bit too doing this is just branding and kind of attaching yourself to something and for me the work that i'm almost most comfortable doing is the editing the close and personal stuff of dealing with what you were producing and then having to market that has always been my kind of issue Andy's helped me a little bit doing that and kind of spreading the word a little bit more so I relate when you're saying yeah you know I'm I'm out working in the farm and now I need to try to work on that marketing aspect of it it's yeah, a tough been, it's been, tough to I've been terrible at that our, that gap. like even just our our display at farmers market is extremely rudimentary you know we just have tables and throw the stuff on it we don't have any pretty signs it's not or, flashy and nothing pretty or that cutesy about it yeah but um yeah we need to put some more effort into that stuff is this just you running this farm yep at the moment i mean my son was involved for many years um and I mean, and I've got great workers. Sure. And my, yeah. Um, I'd imagine a farm's a little harder to market, though, too, in a sense, because it's it's the food, you know? Um, yeah, that was kind of always my thought, is that, that you don't need to, uh, um, it, it shouldn't, it's not the kind of thing that should, it just felt weird to do that with it. I feel that way about this. I'm completely wrong in thinking that, but I, for the longest, had had the belief that if the product is good enough, the people will find it. And I think in a world where there's so much product, regardless of if it's good or bad, there's just so much product, kind of got to find the people in a sense. Yeah, I mean, this, but, you know, our stuff is wholesale to stores for the most part. And so, you know, they, they don't care who the, necessarily who the farm is that grew it. They just want the product. Right. And so, so that's another reason marketing might not be that key for us. Mm-hmm. Is that a 
pretty big source of how you're offloading product is wholesale. It's the um, yeah ninety five percent of it. Yeah, at the moment. But we we would like to do more direct. We, we're thinking about that, and that's why I mentioned that got to get a little better at marketing. Maybe would that be something you could set up as like a website that you could ship product directly? Maybe I'm still looking at yeah, different avenues for that. Thinking about those kind of things. Yeah. Well, I I have always wanted to get into farming, but I think that's something that's going to have to wait for me down the road. I like the idea of being able to grow your own food and not having to just go to the market and grab it and like source or at least source locally, right? And where you know where your food's coming from, you know that it's not sprayed with a bunch of chemicals and stuff. You kind of you feel closer to your food. I think that's a good way to get your food. Yeah, for sure. Agreed. Yeah. Do you do you use any chemicals or pesticides? How do you feel about no, those? No, we've been certified organic since for 26 years now. Yeah. 26 years? Yeah. Damn. Have you always been kind of, sh- not shy, but anti-using those? Did you go into farming with that mindset of, I want to oh, keep it 100%, clean? Oh, 100%. Yeah, definitely. That was always the intention. We're, I mean, yeah, it's a big part of why I like doing it. But why I believe in it, you know, for sure. Is the organic side. Yeah, definitely. Even though organic's not necessarily synonymous with ecological, you know, nobody's making that claim. You know, you could make a very good argument that a little bit of chemical fertilizer might be the most ecological way to go because, you know, trucking giant truckloads of chicken manure all over the place or, uh, you know, from big factory farm chicken houses, you know. So it's, you know, we use chicken manure. We use giant dump. We get giant loads of it from big Petaluma chicken farms. You know, so, but who can put a number, a pencil to that? You know, it'd be hard to even determine what's more ecological. But uh, yeah, the general idea of organic is just to not have uh, bad chemicals for people and around, which is good. And you got to think, you have to take the land aspect in as well. You don't want to just pollute the land. Yeah, it might be more ecological to do that in the short run, but well, long term, right? Yeah, I mean, definitely not pollute, but but some people have argued that a little bit of chemical fertilizer use, you know, which is, is it might not be, it might be the most ecological way to go, as opposed to big truck. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. But I mean, all of my my whole point is to claim that something's more ecological than something else is a giant can of worms. How do you know? You know yeah, how a, do you start quantifying that? Exactly. There's so many variables with that. So I, I was just made, saying that, uh, not making the claim that organic's more ecological, but maybe it is for sure. Yeah, the f- the factory farming aspect seems to be the the main point where everybody gets a little uncomfortable with how that's run. Well, I mean, of course, organic can be factory farm too, mm-hmm. for sure. Do you think it's it's a scale thing? Do you think it's feasible for us to get to a point where most farms are organic and are more in this? stewardship I ideology? 100% think so. Yeah. I mean, some people have the point of view that can't feed the world that way. That's what I've always heard. Yeah. Because it's just, you can't do it. No, I, I, I don't believe that even any, any at all. Not in the slightest bit. I mean, it gets into a whole social thing too, though. You know, I mean, with how people eat and what they eat, how much they eat. I mean, people maybe eat too much now and, and maybe they eat a lot of gross food that they don't need to eat. You know, I mean, so I think al- along with that theory that we can definitely feed the world that way 
comes along, you know, uh, maybe a little bit of change of diet for some, you know, for, but, and I'm not talking, you know, uh, fake meats or anything like that. I mean, that's gross stuff. Yeah, the fake meats yeah, are, yeah, you yeah, lost yeah. me. I'm not talking when you start talking yeah. about the seed oils that are crammed no, into those things. there shouldn't be any seed oils used, period, with anything. Yeah, I mean, all that's, exactly, all, so much land is used for that kind of thing. <clears throat> I mean, that's, as you know, that's one of the worst things people can eat are all the seed oils, yeah. And people just eat it. Most people don't Every, even really understand. You walk understand. in a store and everything on all the shelves everywhere, it's, uh, there's almost nothing edible in most of the stores. Yeah. Canola just, oil, sunflower oil. Well, any packaged item has all kinds of junk in it. Yeah, most of them. Do you yeah. try to stay away from a lot of processed foods like that? Oh, I don't eat any of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, zero. No, I haven't for... You're pulling everything right off the farm. 20 years. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, I mean, I... I I, I get buy fruit in the store. I buy all kinds of stuff, but yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, there's so much interesting stuff going on right now about <clears throat> um, with farming. I mean, uh, <clears throat> all across the country, you know, there's this giant movement going on, as I'm sure you're aware. <clears throat> I mean, people throw that word around, regenerative. You've heard it, right? And it's neat because it's coming from a different direction than organic. Organic almost has a bad name out there in a lot of the huge agricultural world, you know, whereas regenerative does not. I mean, regenerative doesn't mean organic, of course. A lot of it means, you know, there's a set of things it means. Are you, are you familiar with it? Yeah. Yeah. For people that don't know what it is, you want to explain what? <clears throat> well, I mean, it's just minimum tillage or ideally very almost no tillage, and it means keeping the ground covered. You know, and the idea for that is it's good for the soil health. <clears throat> and of course, if you're not tilling the soil, theoretically, you're building up more carbon in the soil, right? You're not depleting organic matter in the soil. And so theoretically, you're, it's better for the climate too. You know, all that. Um, in quotes. Um, and then, uh, you know, less, less uh, energy intensive and ideally not much chemical use. But of course, regenerative still at the moment is it's is allows chemical use because a lot of people that are <clears throat> um, doing regenerative farming are still using chemicals. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's how they're doing the no-till stuff because they can kill uh, the kill crop and then without tillage <clears throat> and then plant. They're they're trying to get away from that, but it's still allowed in a lot of regenerative definitions. Yeah, I've always heard regenerative, and you think it ties back into that stewardship that they're trying to provide a long term longevity. Yeah, for sure. To their methods and to the soil and the ecosystem as a whole. That you're rotating crops. If you have animals, you're moving the animals from pasture to pasture. You're trying to, the idea of living with the land instead of living on the land seems to tie into that. Right. But that's, I mean, that's so ambiguous. That can mean a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Clearly, you could use chemicals, yeah. which I didn't know that. Well, well I mean, no, I mean, the, 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 ideally, it, you're supposed to get away from them. But the whole no-till thing is, that's, that's like really interesting stuff. You know, there's stuff going on all across the country with that. And, uh. Obviously, there's a massive amount of giant conventional agriculture has done no-till now, right? You know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, most, I mean, probably, I don't know what the percentage is now, but it's huge of the soybeans and wheat and corn being grown all across the country with heavy chemical use is done no-till now. 
And of course, it's being done with chemicals, with, with Roundup in particular, because uh, that's how they get a seedbed without weeds. They, they kill everything there and then they plant. They kill everything with Roundup, then they plant. And that's why they've made these, all these GMO crops, the corn, soybean, and wheat, all that stuff. And they've made it Roundup resistant so they can, uh, one of the main reasons is so they can do no-till farming with it. Is it cheaper to use chemicals instead of tilling the ground? Or it's just more effective using the chemicals? Um, well, it's, <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's, it, it's both. It's both. Um, there's a, there's a lot of people that really a lot of these big conventional growers that do use chemicals really believe in no-till. Um, they feel like it's better for their soil because they because they care. I mean, I think everybody cares, even the people using chemicals. You know, they they just feel like it's okay, like it's a necessary evil. You know. Um. I mean, how scary is Roundup? It's the worst thing ever. Yeah, I mean, I th I think. I mean, what the heck do I know? But yeah, I think it's one of the worst things ever. As you know, you've heard all about the bad stuff with it. We uh we yeah. pulled up a stat the I mean, other day. A lot day. of people claim that all all our you know all degenerative diseases going on right now are basically resulted. I mean, that's what Zach Bush, you know that guy, right? I don't. Yeah, and um, he's a pretty famous doctor now. Um, and then you know all the gluten intolerances are because of the microbe. I have heard that. Yeah, that's that were, uh, these chemicals. Are just, well, yeah. the stat we pulled up the other day was that eighty percent of Americans have glyphosate in their urine. Yeah, I would think it'd be a hundred percent. Yeah, probably is. Yeah. But I, I, how scary is that? Yep. And we don't do anything about it. We just keep on making crops that are resistant to the chemicals, and then keep pumping up the chemicals, and then when the weeds start to adapt, we just. I think that ultimately there's a movement. Um, I think uh, I think this regenerative thing is because it's um, coming out um, from a, a place of uh, I don't know. I think I th I'm I'm optimistic, and I think eventually that that will change. I think it will. What the heck do I know? <laughs> More than me, I'm terrified. You start, you hear about glyphosate, and you're right, you hear about the effects that these chemicals have on your gut, which we're learning, I mean, we really don't understand the gut. We don't really understand the brain either, but... And we never will. Even when we start thinking we do, that's, that's the we worst learn, thing. Yeah, we learn yeah. something else. But yeah. they've started realizing, oh, your gut has an effect on your mood, it has an effect on your course, cognitive yeah. ability, yeah. your diet. How many people, not to get too political like you said, but how many people during COVID were freaked out about all these other things and they're eating garbage every single day they're eating mcdonald's they're eating these foods oh, fried or, or in these seed say oils they, yeah i mean it's of course people say they can't afford organic but then in their cart is a bunch of soda and a bunch of uh cigarettes and and beer you know things that that are of course that's okay god i'm not making <laughs> it's fine if somebody wants to eat that way but uh just understand yeah. that you're eating this stuff what i have a problem with is people that get these foods pushed on them and they think, oh yeah, this, you know, covering my food in these, these dressings that are just based off these seed oils, it's healthy. It's like, it's not, you can eat it if you want. You can go eat McDonald's, you can eat that pizza, but understand that this is not real food. Just, but there's no talk of that. People don't want to dive into that realm. Well, but there's so many people into that diving into that right now. It seems bigger yeah. now. It's, 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 but is it mainstream? Do you think? Well, no. And a lot of those people, of course, are being considered, you know, misinformation people. You know, like, are you familiar with Dr. Mercola? Ah, uh, 
Is he oh, tied to COVID? Why does that name sound familiar? Well, unfortunately, that's what's brought him to the... Um, a lot of people know him now because of COVID, yeah. But he's... Um, Peter McCullough. Doc, uh, no? Oh, maybe a different guy. I'm, I mean, I'm just forgetting his first name for some reason at the moment. Um, but he's uh, his website's an amazing resource for health, people concerned with health. I mean, it's been a go-to place for decades for a lot of people. Um, he's you know, always been extremely concerned about GMOs, anti-pesticides, and about the seed oils. You, know, you can really find a lot of information there. Of course, he came out very anti-vaccine, and so um, he's been considered— Shot down. Exactly. He doesn't, even have a, he doesn't even have a YouTube site or anything anymore. You can only find his information on his website itself now. That's the scary thing is when somebody just gets unplugged. Yeah. No, we're going to— he's, he's amazing as far as food and health and stuff. Why do you think the suppression around diet has been so heavily enforced for so long? Do you think it's the monetary aspect of— pushing these processed foods well but it's also it becomes a political thing the way people eat right i mean it's like if they eat organic they're it's almost not cool for a lot of people you know um to eat healthy it's almost like a political it'd be it, they consider it a um a political statement to eat the way they do to to not care about that um do you think that's tied it's, it's into like the cost? It's like there's this dichotomy, this whole dichotomy across society going on, right? Of like this side or that side, instead of people thinking for themselves and and figuring out what's what's good and, and not good. Do you think that's tied into the cost though of organic, where it is a little more expensive than just buying? I don't think it's tied into the cost myself because, like I said, as far as it doesn't seem like it stops people that are concerned about the cost from buying their Snickers bars or whatever. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I know there's a lot of people that. I think it's really important for organics to be um, competitive cost-wise. That's I really think that's important, um, and it's becoming more and more true. You know, um, I mean, obviously, there's places like Costco that sell org organics very inexpensively. I think the problem is, is you have Costco, but then you also have Whole Foods, and Whole Foods it's like fifteen dollars for an apple. And you're like, what? What is this? What are we doing here? Yeah. an interesting dichotomy that mix but do you yeah see i mean and, and then of course you have to guard against the thing about thinking that you know more than anybody else and if you think you should try to change the way other people eat that's kind of a, a red light right there that you know like we're you know why why should i think that i that that people should change the way they eat i mean it seems obvious people could be healthier if they ate a different way but it also feels wrong to uh, to preach or try to change or think you know more. Yeah. I think the force aspect is the problem. When you try to force people to do something. You can tell them, you can give them the information when you try to force them to do something. If you know that certain foods aren't great for you and you want to eat them in moderation, great. Do your, it's your life. But you should be able to know that it's not the best. Be able to know. That's like if we were still selling cigarettes and saying, yeah, these are great for you. They prevent cancer. You should smoke a pack a day. You're lying to the people. You shouldn't force them not to smoke cigarettes if they want to smoke a cigarette. Your own free will. Do what you want to do. Yeah, right, but you course. should be able to know the consequences. Otherwise, how do you make an accurate 
decision on well, what you right, on what to and, act. and exactly that brings back the whole not to be political again the whole the whole vaccine thing the people that had alternative viewpoints and wanted to talk about it and bring up their legitimate concerns just were cut down just uh right to know you know did you fall into that camp which camp the camp of peter or not peter mccullough but mccullough the anti-vax stance um definitely yeah i'm I'm very anti-drug in general i don't so i don't think people should be taking drugs for sure um a lot of the other things that that same camp of people believes i definitely don't agree with um and i uh Um, once again, you, you know, you gotta, you know, there's, there's two camps and people say, they just want to jump on this side or that side and believe everything this side is saying and nothing, you know, yeah. There's what no about nuance. You? There's no nuance. I, I, I think we are in a fascinating time and that people don't want to have rational debates about anything. Yeah. They want you to side up with their argument yep. and that means across the board. It means Every box has to be checked on this side, right, or every exactly. box has to be checked on the other side. That dichotomy, exactly. Yeah, you yeah, can't. It's terrible. You can't cross a couple over here. And unfortunately, somehow here. caring about the environment and health has become aligned with one side, which is interesting, right? You think health would be across the right, board, and it's really sad that that's been that way. And that's why I mean, it's almost a political statement for people to not want to eat that way. And I think that's what needs to change. You know what I mean? But do you think it will change? You pretty optimistic about that? I think eventually, yeah, I think it will. But I think it, it, yeah, just somehow, um, it it has to not be aligned anymore with. You got to strip away politics. Yeah. People love politics. Politics are tied into every aspect of life now. It, I mean, where do you go? Where do you go to escape? Yeah, that's what I mean. You can't. Um, The problem, the biggest problem, and really the foundational problem with that is the idea that you can have the rug pulled out from under you for what you say. That's what I always fall back to. Because if we can't agree to it, to disagree, we can't even have the conversation. And that, that ties back into health, that ties into politics, that ties into every other aspect. You're and right. To be able it's, to have it's, the it's conversation. terrible when people um, won't, 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 won't uh, communicate like that. You're right. That's a really big deal. Um, what, what else what were we going to say? No, just okay. I, I mean, I, I get heated up whenever we start talking about the, the censorship, the censorship. Yeah. Especially because I do this. I mean, I'm, I just talk. And so if you take the ability to talk away from people, kind Ter of, it's terrible. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of a red I mean, flag for me. It's the whole thing though, that, uh, you know, like any kind of private entity, it's of course okay for them or is it to, to to do their own censorship you know i mean that gets into that whole thing like can can facebook censor you know what they want or not um because that's different than some government doing it but it, it all gets so related right that's really not yeah. that different yeah. it's still some group of people deciding what is and what is not and who gets to have that power who who would not be corrupted by that power is the better question. Yeah, for sure. So what do you think? Everything should just be okay? Uh, there should not be any censorship I get into that debate a lot yeah. with my parents because they yeah. are, they would consider me a free speech absolutist. I would not consider myself that. Mm -hmm. I think you should, hate speech is a problem. 
hate speech is not great. But everything that is outside of hate speech and calling for physical violence against people, you kind of have to allow, I think, in some sense. Doesn't mean I agree with everybody's speech. Doesn't mean I feel the, that what they're saying is good or should be spread. But it is a, it's an acknowledgement that I don't think anybody should have the power to police that. Because where does, where does the buck stop? We agree, okay, this is wrong. But then do we also agree this is wrong? Okay. And then we agree this is wrong? Like, where does that line end? Yeah, it's the lines. Where you put the lines. And who gets to draw that line? Yeah, it might be a great line that's today. The, that's with almost every debate, where the line is, is... is, is it's crucial. Yeah. It's, it's a problem. I mean, you can pick any subject, you know, abortion or gun control. Where's the line? You know, can people own giant rocket launchers? You know, I mean, where's the line? You know. That'd be pretty crazy if you could just go buy a rocket launcher. But, I mean, that's an, that's an extreme case. But with speech, at least, I'm a believer that words only have power if you give them power. So sitting on that, let it, let it fly. As long as, it, again, it's not hate speech and you're not calling for violence. Because what's the argument against well, the rest of it? It's just too terrifying to, to think of, yeah, the... When you start limiting free speech, it's it's just terrifying. So you have to push that line always as far as you can to allowing whatever it seems like. And we've seen that regardless of how you feel about COVID or, or where somebody stands. We're learning a lot about information that was previously written off as misinformation and now is coming out to be true information. And people that were touting that back during COVID were censored. and now it's just open information. And so you can make the argument, yeah, the information changes. Okay. Yeah, the science changes. Okay. Those people were punished for what they said. And now it's right. So if you how do we how do we quarrel with that? And that's where the censorship argument dies in my mind. Is because you don't know. You don't know if it's true. You don't know if it's false. So you can't pull it. You have to just let it play out. The best way to combat misinformation is to provide good information, not censor. If you start censoring people, they just go into wormholes. Yeah, I couldn't. And agree you get QAnon. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Totally agree. Yeah, it is. It is an interesting time to be alive. That's for sure. Well, it's really good you doing what you do, because it is a. Uh, um, I'm not doing a whole lot. Well, actually. I mean, if, if, if you, if you like sat somewhere and thought, okay, what can I do to encourage people talking and, and, you know, um, it's, it's a great beginning what you're doing. It, it can't be a better beginning. And of course, who knows where it'll lead you, right? I mean, um, who knows where, where, might get thrown in jail. No. <laughs> where you, what you'll be doing in five years, you know, this yeah. might, it might get more and more bigger and bigger. And so it's a great beginning. Well, I joke about yeah. it a lot in the sense that I almost view it in a selfish kind of way because I need this. It's almost, mm -hmm. I, I need to go to the gym to work out for mental clarity for my health. I need to do this in almost the same way Yeah, because I get so much out of it. It grounds me. And I think a lot of people are starved for real authentic communication. You don't have to agree with the person. You don't have to like them at the end of it or, or align with their points. At least you got to have a real conversation with somebody, and that it's you're definitely not finding that on social media. I think podcasts are a huge avenue for it, but 
how many people get to have this experience if they don't have a podcast? Yeah. Maybe there's a way for you to, uh, to bridge that dichotomy and start knocking that dichotomy down, get people to think more for themselves. And that's maybe what you're doing. You know? That'd be great if I was. Yeah. I'm, I, I wouldn't go so far. I'm just a guy <laughs> in a garage doing a podcast, but I think every little bit helps. Every small step in the right direction is a good step to make. Okay, well, Blake, we can end it on that. I, I really appreciate right. you coming on, man. Is I had a great over? time. Yeah. Uh, do you want to plug really fast where people can find no. you? No, you're good. Yeah. Okay, man. Simple pleasures. I like that. Okay, Blake, thank you. It's over? Yep. Yep.